Kubernetes community, and welcome to another edition of the PodCTL podcast. Uh, this week, we have some interesting news coming out of the uh, CNCF Foundation, as well as Red Hat. And uh, after that, we're going we're gonna to spend some time talking more in detail about kind of day-to-day with, with Kubernetes. Uh, we, sp- we spend a lot of time... Uh, thinking about you know the initial upfront install and things like that, but but what happens day two to you know day two thousand? Yeah, I think you know I think we get uh, I think we've spent a decent amount of time sort of talking about hey what are all the tools I need and what are the bits of the technology and and now we ought to just jump into hey you're you're running Kubernetes now what does your life look like so uh, yeah those will be good to uh, to dig into. So um, you mentioned some interesting news. Why don't we jump right into that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the the first one was um, the the CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, launches their uh, certified Kubernetes program with uh, 32 conformant distributions and platforms. So what does that mean? You know, I think for for a while now, people have you know, anytime a project or any sort of technology kind of gets new and, and grows and so forth, at some point people go, okay, cool. Is it a standard? Like, how can I be sure that I'm getting what I'm supposed to be getting? And so in the open source world, we have these foundations and the foundations are kind of acting to a certain extent, like what standards bodies used to be. So what people used to know from, I don't know, the IETF or the IEEE or the WC3 or, you know, wherever you sort of used to think about standards, that's what these foundations are becoming. And this is their initial foray into saying, hey, we, we want to have a standard way of, of saying that something that you get that uses Kubernetes is, is going to be, you know, compliant with, you know, with a, with another set of standards that we're going to measure it against. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, um, you know, a piece of it when it comes to uh, the foundations too, right. They, they control, uh, usually the, the trademarks for the, for the project and stuff. So that gets into, you know, if you, if, you know, if that, you know, now has a name, so like Kubernetes has a, you know, well-known name in the community community, if you're talking about your thing as Kubernetes, they just want to, you know, set some kind of ground rules. Right. And, you know, in that context, um, you know, people sometimes wondered, hey, you know, why do people sometimes call their, you know, their product has the word container in it, but then they use K in the acronym and so forth. You know, like, for example, when the Google container engine first came out, people called it GK or, you know, it's, it was called GKE or Azure came along with the Azure updated Azure container service, which was AKS. And some people were like, oh, that's weird. You know, they're, why, why don't they use C <laughs> instead of K? And this is sort of part of it. Like you said, um, the CNCF owns the trademark on, uh, on the word Kubernetes and before, those things were released before this thing came out. So there actually was a clause in there that said, hey, you can't use the word Kubernetes in your product name. And so that was uh, that. was that. So I think, well, we're already starting to see some people change their product name from you know using the word Kubernetes with a K to uh, having Kubernetes in it. And uh, that's just one of the little nuances that goes on in uh, intellectual property around open source. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, what what was what I like to see about this because you know, like you said, there's always especially with open source projects and and companies can can tweak and build on and stuff like that. You kind of want to make sure you have the real thing in there, if you will. And we saw some we discussed on an early episode that you know I think some of the people talking about p- pure Kubernetes or something like that. And and really, this is just to kind of, I think puts that to, to bed to some degree because as a user, you're concerned with you know when I use a tool, if I'm using the command line or or an API or whatever, it does what I expect it to do and it's and it's you know and it works. So here what they did uh, was basically uh, like like any good software development, Kubernetes has you know a whole CI C D pipeline and they do tests of every commits and things like that. And one of their integration tests, their end to end integration tests of uh, the API and the client 
this is basically what they're using here. So it's an existing test. Um, they didn't have to build a whole new one. And it basically says, hey, does your thing, when when we run pretty much all these commands, do, do, do they work? Um, and that's that's to, you know, saying it conforms to the end-to-end tests for the API. Uh, so I think this is, I like it. It's, it's you know, it's not a whole separate test suite to maintain as, you know, as Kubernetes grows and, and they add more integration tests, it just automatically shows up in there. And and I think it's, you know, a, a better approach than, than what we've seen previously with some uh, some other projects. Yeah, and I, and I think this is important. It's an important stage for uh, for the community and for the industry because, again, it does say, hey, there's a level of maturity. Um, there's a level of governance and kind of uh, agreement between you know different parties um, that, that this is this is where we're going to do it. So so yeah, it was interesting. There was there was 32 what they called either distributions or platforms that were listed on this. Again, most of those end up being um, you know something that you would get from a company or you know a public cloud service or something like that. There were a couple of interesting statements from Dan Kahn, who is the you know runs the CNCF that I thought were were worth pointing out. And and these aren't a knock on on Dan, but I think we have to be a little bit careful sometimes with language because we learned like from example like in the open stack project, a lot of people, um, and I'll say people in the sense of like end user customers and so forth, or even just people that have been in the industry for a while, but have lived in mostly the proprietary world. So, you know, they were used to getting technology from a vendor and they thought the thing they got was was called a product. And and Dan made a couple of statements that, you know, I think we have to be careful about um, how we, we call this stuff. Because again, at the end of the day, Kubernetes is an open source project. And, and to a certain extent, it's, you know, it gets made up of a bunch of different projects sometimes that you know, people put together, but, you know, he made a couple of statements. Um, we'll put them in the show notes. So we don't have to read the whole thing, but, you know, he said, uh, we are confident this will remain a single product going forward and not fork. And people have to be very careful of that word product, because even if you look at the original list, the district, you know, the list of the 32 conformant things, there's not the word product in there, right? You're either a distribution or a service. Product tends to be, at least in most people's minds, something that you're going to get. It's got fit and finish. It, it typically has a support that goes with it. You're going to get documentation. Like there's an expectation of product. So I think we have to be careful to sort of say, this isn't a product. This is a, a project kind of validation type of thing. That, that was the first point I saw. The other one that was sort of interesting to me was he called it a single open source software stack. And one of the things I've heard about the CNCF that sometimes people get confused about, I know we talked about this with, with Chris, uh, the CTO over at the CNCF, there's a lot of technologies that go around Kubernetes, whether that's you know Prometheus or whether it's uh, you know Istio or Envoy or all these other things um, you know that are going on, CRI and all these things. Those things are, to a certain extent, loosely coupled pieces, right? They're they're not necessarily part of the Kubernetes, you know, this thing, right? They're not part of the Kubernetes API. They're part of, you know, things that you can integrate, whether it's through networking or storage or, or whatever. So I think people have to be a little careful because the CNCF isn't a stack, right? And and I think they've sort of said they don't want to be a stack. They don't want to be the LAMP stack. But sometimes we we tend to say, oh, well, it's it's the stack. And, and again, we just have to be careful with the language, I think, um, so we don't give off the wrong person, con, the wrong impression to people about, you know, what, what they get and, and what's included. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think especially with you know people are you know paying a little closer attention to that now as companies mature in this in this market more in general and these you know more complex distributed systems like you know OpenStack previously and, and now Kubernetes. So I think it's I think if people are paying closer attention to that, so I think yeah I think words matter and got to be careful how you word things in a way that uh, doesn't give people the wrong impression. Yeah, and and again I, I think it, it all goes back to sometimes you look back at 
the areas where, you know, you were learning, but maybe you made some mistakes or, or so on and so forth. Like people, for example, used to say, oh, well, it's hard to upgrade OpenStack. And you would say, okay, OpenStack involves 10, 12, 15 different projects and so forth. Like which one are you talking about and so forth? It's the same sort of thing. So anyways, I think we've, I think we've sort of hit on that. We'll put all the links in the show notes for people. Um, overall, like you said, this is a, this is a very good thing because at the end of the day, you are validating it against code. You're validating against the exact same set of tests that everybody else uses every single day. So it's, uh, you know, it's sort of eating your own dog food, um, you know, way of, of validating what you're going to have. The other thing we had on the list was, um, and again, you know, we, we talk about certain product announcements and uh, you and I both work for Red Hat. So uh, we had a release this week. Uh, why don't you talk about what uh, what came out in uh, OpenShift 3.7? Sure. So OpenShift's numbering scheme, um, it matches the Kubernetes one. So OpenShift Container Platform 3.7 is based on Kubernetes 1.7. Um, the, the, so anything that's, you know, when we talked about uh, the Kubernetes 1.7 release, that's that's kind of what you'll find here. Uh, the other couple big things was the OpenShift service catalog. So based on the, uh, you know, kind of Kubernetes uh, service catalog concept is bringing that from a, it was a tech preview in a preview in the previous releases, now a, a GA uh, a component where um, you can basically surface services to your, to your developers that they can choose to consume. And we do it via serv- the open service broker. Um, so the open service broker API that based on the, the work from the Cloud Foundry Foundation um, that has made it over to Kubernetes as well. Uh, plug those in, and uh, one of the first ones, uh, besides the you know built-in uh, what we call OpenShift Template Broker, was uh, a part. Uh, we announced a partnership with AWS where they're supplying a AWS service broker to to make the AWS service uh, services available within uh, OpenShift, no matter where you're running it. Yeah, and we we announced that back at, at Red Hat Summit. Um, there's some we'll put a link to the videos that were shown. Um, there'll be some more announcements that get made at uh, reInvent here in a couple of weeks. So uh, we won't go into that too much. But yeah, it's um, it is it's always good to get um, new releases to GA. Um, you know, we'll have more to talk about it, uh, KubeCon and so forth. But um, yeah, so you know, cool thing is uh, continue to keep cranking out the new releases. I think the biggest thing for me about this one was this now kind of expands how you can bring in third-party services. And, and again, it's all based on uh, the open service broker API, the uh, service catalog SIG within Kubernetes. And we had talked with uh, Paul Morey back a couple of shows again, uh, a p- couple of shows ago uh, about that. So if you want to dig into that in more detail, Paul goes into really good uh, technical detail in that show. Yeah, the only other uh, the other two ones that I mentioned is the network policy went GA. Uh, which was tech preview previously, you can get very fine grained control on the networking at the pod level. Uh, and also, you know, referring back to a previous show, uh, Prometheus uh, as a tech preview in 3.7. So using Prometheus as your as your cluster monitoring um, for uh, for 3.7 shows up as a tech preview. Yep. So lots of good stuff in this release. Um, so why don't we jump into the other part of what we wanted to talk about? You know, we get requests from people all the time. We, we're, we're lucky in that we get to talk to a lot of customers that are uh, using Kubernetes in production. And we, we also get a chance to talk to a lot of companies who are considering it and they're coming from whatever their existing environment is. And they ask a lot of operational questions, you know, how does this change from where I am? How do I do this? How do I do that? So I thought maybe it would be good for us to just kind of cover some of the basics that we get uh, in talking to companies um, that are running this in production. Uh, what do they have to do? How do they have to evolve and so forth? So why don't we dig into that a little bit? Um, yeah, yeah. So let, let me start with uh, sort of first first one on here. So you you want to run Kubernetes. Um, you're going to go, you know, get the software, whether you're getting a, 
uh, a new, you know, compliant distribution, or you're going to get OpenShift, whatever. How do I? So that's the that's the Kubernetes software. It's the masters. It's a cubelet and so forth. But what do I do to just get all of the nodes ready to go that I'm going to run these applications on? I mean, is that sort of part of Kubernetes, or is that something else I have to do? Uh, well, you're going to need a you're going to need uh, some some Linux nodes to uh, to run them on. They could be virtual. They could be physical. Uh, so your first kind of decision point there is, well, what Linux operating system do I want to use? And, and what we generally see uh, people doing is sticking with the distro they know. So if they have a huge, you know, uh, Ubuntu environment or something like that, um, they'll 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 start there and say, well, we're, we we already have a whole bunch of those. We'll stand up some new ones and run it on that. Um, you know, same thing with Rail. Uh, we're we're starting. Customers will also look at some of these newer kind of slim um, container OS type options. So whether that's Atomic, you know, Rail Atomic or Core OS or something like that, they're usually considering that. Um, but usually from a from an initial starting point, they I've seen customers not go that route because now they're introducing another layer of hey, we're learning this Kubernetes thing, but at the same time, we're also going to try and learn a new operating system. Um, so so usually they they stick with what they know. And the other part of that is uh, you know. These are going to be nodes that uh, you know most likely you're going to you're going to grow. Um, you're going to make some modifications to. You might be adding other nodes, um, you know, as you as you add more applications. So you definitely want to make sure you have a solid foundation. Sort of in some cases it might be an IaaS foundation. Um, in other cases it might just be you know really good automation around bare metal. Uh, but you want a an automated way to be able to deploy new nodes or, you know, if necessary, like take a node out of service, uh, replace it um, or remove a node and so forth. So, you know, kind of having that, that IaaS or that, at least that cloud automation foundation is, is the other big piece of that first level. Yeah. So that, that's, that's a really good point there is the, how are you getting, so you want that OS, but how are you getting it? So if you're doing something like you're running an Amazon or, or Azure or something, it's generally a click or an API call and, and boom, there's, there's your node. Um, if you're doing it on-prem, how you, how do you get nodes now? You know, are you using, something like VMware or or something like that, or bare metal. You know, I've I've customers that that want to. You know, they're like, oh, we're we're really we want to do containers on bare metal. Like, cool. Like, what's your process for deploying bare metal servers now and imaging them and managing them? And they're like, ooh, yeah, we've been doing the virtualization thing for a while, so we're kind of not as good at bare metal right now. So that so that's something to be considered. You know, the good news is um, deploying something onto a VM on Amazon or Azure or VMware or whatever. By no means is a is a new concept these days. Obviously. Obviously, people have been doing it for probably almost almost a decade now, or you know maybe a little bit less. Uh, but the good news is there are a bunch of automation tools that'll help you do that. So whether you're looking at, like you mentioned, Ansible or Terraform or you know Chef or Puppet or you know native VMware tools or whatever that might be, uh, you know make make sure you you've got some people that uh, on your team that are capable of of you know getting you resources deployed and um, and then be talking to them about okay. Um, how do we make it so that you're not a single point of failure? Like, how can we plug into how you're going to integrate spinning up a, a new machine and, and getting an OS on it and making sure it's security hardened and all those sort of things? Um, so the second the second kind of area that we get people ask a lot about is, um, so I've got Kubernetes up and running and you know I'm deploying more applications. Maybe some of my applications have to scale. Like, what's the connection between Kubernetes having to scale. We've seen lots of demos of, you know, spin up some pods, grow the number of pods and so forth, or, or a blue-green deployment or something. But like, how do I connect scaling up those pods at a container level with the underlying compute nodes? Like, is that a, is that a, a feature or a, an object in Kubernetes? Or like, what's the connection point there? Yeah, so th- it's a two-part operation, um, which right now, 
is uh, um, is is a bit you know it's still it's still a sort of a manual thing. There's people have built some scripting around and things like that because you you have imagine there there's a t- so like let's say you have a whole bunch of worker nodes and they're and they're filling up and you want to scale scale this out. The first thing you need is that worker node we were just talking about. So hey, I need another you know Linux instance. Um, I need to install Kubernetes, you know, kubelet on it and have it join the join the cluster as a node. So it's sort of a two two part process. So give me the you know, give me the OS and then let me run the you know, run the appropriate commands to to bring it in to add that. So you can so so if you were doing that say from some sort of auto scaling feature, which is something that's being worked on in Kubernetes to say like, hey, if we get to X amount full, here's some of the things I want to do. Um, it's not, you know, fully baked as part of the, as part of Kubernetes right now. Yeah. And I, and I think it, it is, it's important to realize there are sort of two layers to this, right? So the, the auto scaling capability that's in Kubernetes today, um, at least in the stuff that's sort of GA is mostly based around CPU. That's, that's going to significantly expand here in, in new releases. It'll be based on memory and other custom resources that you'll be able to sort of define and get granular with. But, you know, today, if, if you hit a certain CPU threshold, um, you can have the system auto scale the number of pods that you want, but that's not necessarily tied to say like, uh, your load balancer, right? It doesn't, it doesn't automatically go, Oh, I hit a CPU level, spin up 10 more pods. Oh, and by the way, go tell that F5 load balancer or HAP proxy or an AWS autoscaler to autoscale. So there, there is, uh, you know, still sort of, like you said, two layers to that. Um, there's not a, you know, kind of autoscale button, if you will, for the entire system. And I think people want that, um, uh, but that's still kind of an emerging space and, and definitely something that if you're in the app team, and the ops team, you definitely want to be talking about how you're going to coordinate those types of things. Yeah, and I think I think what's what's made this not be the most pressing piece of uh, you know of a container environment is the the scale which you're talking about with containers, um, where they're you know much much smaller footprint than something like a VM. Uh, so that's made it. Uh, you know, a little bit easier from a scale. You know, adding a node now, I could potentially add thousands of of uh, of containers. Uh, makes you know the the need to immediately scale get get a lot shorter. Right. Well, and I think you know, quite honestly, the companies that we've talked to that you know might have to scale up, so let's say fifty or a hundred nodes or something, you know, for for peak periods. Maybe they're in e-commerce or you know they've just got a big event coming on. Like they're usually pretty good at going like, oh, scaling up fifty or a hundred VMs under the covers. Like eh, we, we do that all the time. Like we know how to do that stuff. So we do see a lot of companies who will you know in the early days just sort of build out some additional infrastructure, make it readily available, um, and then they can just kind of take advantage of it when they need it. So maybe they have five extra nodes somewhere that are you know kind of running idle. Um, not doing a whole lot, and then they can kind of scale to those and, and grow as they go. Um, okay, so let's talk about the third one. So, and this is something that's definitely uh, needs to be on everybody's radar. So, uh, you know, one of the things we tend to talk about here all the time is, hey, there's a new release of Kubernetes that came out, right? Which one of the great things about this community is they're going really fast. Uh, there's a new release every quarter, essentially like clockwork. The flip side of that is, hey, I have another new release to deal with. You know, what do I do? So, Let's suppose that you decide, hey, you want to move from you know one point six or OpenShift three point six to to one point seven or you know whatever releases in between. Um, what's the what are the sort of steps that I need within a running environment to get it upgraded? Yeah, so so what's again you know being built in the distributed system model, um, kind of Kubernetes is built. Uh, from from the beginning to to uh, be upgraded, so there, there's really two ways to do it, right? So there's the the blue green type model, and then the upgrade in place. So you can obviously you start with uh, one of the core features, which you know we talked about in our basic shows, which is um, you know uh, etcd, 
So upgrading if there's an etcd upgrade, uh, taking care of that first. Uh, again, that's a that's a scale out system. So so it's a rolling upgrade of the of the etcd nodes. Um, then you're going to upgrade the masters um, to to the latest version, and then from there it's. If you're doing blue green, you're deploying new workers. And again, if you're on something like AWS or something, it's pretty you know pretty easy. You're consuming more resources temporarily, but you spin up a bunch of uh, new nodes on the new version and move your move your containers over, and then blow away the old ones. You know once you're once you're comfortable with it, or you're just upgrading those nodes in place. Yeah, and I think we've seen um, we've seen companies that do both. Uh, we've seen companies that will say, hey. Uh, you know, I'm not totally comfortable yet with the idea of kind of rolling things back. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do sort of a blue green environment. I'm gonna have, you know, an older version with most of my resources. I'm gonna spin up a newer version with, you know, some some new resources. I'll put a few applications over there or a percentage of those applications over there. Make sure it works, um, and then I can I can shift. You know, whether it's load balancing or routes or DNS entries or whatever it might be, an API uh, gateway to that new environment when I feel comfortable with it. And, and I think we've seen a lot of companies that are, that are more comfortable with that. Um, you know, we do have people that say, hey, I don't want to have any extra resources, which, you know, may or may not be a good idea. It's, you know, what you're comfortable with. Um, but uh, yeah, you definitely want to get comfortable with the idea of, you know, kind of a few basic things. How do I uh, evacuate applications that are, that are on a host. Um, how do I manage doing the, the, the master upgrades? And, and again, that's why you've got you know multiple masters you want to think about. Where do I place them? What's their proximity to each other and so forth? Um, but there's, the good news is there are a bunch of really good best practices that have all now sort of been written down by different people who you know have scars and experience and um, that you can you can draw from and say, okay, this is what, our, what we want to do with our upgrade. You know, is this a good plan? Yeah, and, and this goes back to the you know, like almost any open source you know product versus project discussion. You know, some of the distributions um, have tooling to do this for you. So if it's something you're kind of concerned with, you can choose a distribution, or you know, something like like GKE or or AKS. Um, they handle the upgrades for you. You know, it's mostly push button. Uh, so if that's something that makes sense, you know, when you when you're figuring that out, you know, it's something to keep in mind as well. Yeah, and it's something that that I whenever I go go talk to companies that are doing this site, I always kind of bring it up to them because I'll say, look, um, you know, especially for your infrastructure team, how often are you currently upgrading, you know, important elements? And in a lot of cases, it's like, well, you know, maybe every six months, often once a year, you know, we'll take whatever we get from a product or for a vendor or whatever, we'll find a, an outage window and we'll do it. And it really kind of comes back to the idea that, hey, you know, this is this is very much software defined infrastructure. You need a, a plan in place to deal with things like versioning, uh, rollbacks, um, understanding how to how to do some of those things that look like software. Um, so there's, you know, definitely some opportunities to to work with the operations team and the development team to say like, Hey, um, are there some common practices we can use here? Because we don't want to get, you know, multiple releases behind, uh, Kubernetes, um, mostly cause you want the features, but also just, you know, cause people may not want to keep supporting you at least, especially from a community perspective, if you're three or four releases behind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, you know, kind of, there's the, when you have projects that move relatively quickly, like like Kubernetes, uh, and we saw this with OpenStack too, is there's this um, sort of count, you know, sort of upgrade paradox, right? So the you know reason most companies are slow to upgrade things is they're worried about stability and risk. So they, um, you know, that that's what they're thinking about. So it's like, oh, well, we'll make sure everything is baked, and then we'll upgrade to the new version. With these faster moving product uh, projects, the the upgrade path from say, you know, Kube, you know, one dot seven to one dot eight or one dot six to one dot seven is pretty straightforward. The upgrade from you know one dot one to 
1.8, there may not be a clear path because it hasn't been tested and, and things like that. So you get so far behind, you're actually introducing more risk. And you know, we saw this with OpenStack where you basically became to, well, we want to, we're ready to upgrade now. It's like, well, you're eight releases behind, so you're better off just deploying new and migrating over. And yeah. then the time that takes, then they're doing it again and again. Uh, whereas actually, you know, being able to have this pretty op- pretty well operationalized is key to staying pretty close to, you know, you know, you don't have to be on the bleeding edge, but at least, you know, pretty close with up- upgrades, you know, actually lowers your risk. And it's definitely something to, you know, if you go down the path of a, of a vendor uh, distribution or service or platform, you know, talk to them about what they, what they can help you with, what they support, how far back they'll support things. Um, you know, if you're, if you're going the community route, um, you know, definitely jump in the Slack channel, jump in the IRC channels and so forth and kind of see what people do, like how, how, how a other people manage through it. And the last thing you want to be doing is, uh, is, is be doing it on a Saturday night and, uh, you know, upgrading four releases and be like, Oh, I'm sure there'll just be people there on a, you know, and you're like, Oh, okay. It's not, you know, it's not what I expected. So sort of just do some homework ahead of time, um, as you're doing that. And, um, so the next one I wanted to jump into was, you know, we get, we get a lot of questions from people who say, okay, we're thinking about containers. Maybe we haven't done containers before. Like, what are some of the common things that change from, you know, some of the previous technologies people are used to? So maybe we'll use virtual machines as a, as a baseline or an example. What are, so, what are you seeing some of the common things that change or, or stay the same between, you know, running and operating a, a VM environment versus running and operating, say, like a, a container-centric environment. Um, well, I think the the you know there there's some sort of advantages there, right? You instead of let's say if you have ten thousand VMs, you have ten thousand full operating system instances uh, that you have to manage. However, you manage operating systems. Uh, whereas with containers, they're you know they're not. They're you know you, those ten ten thousand may run on you know um, fifty nodes or something like that. So that's how many full OS images you're managing. Uh, so that so that is it makes things easier. And then there's also the kind of somewhat ephemeral nature of containers. Even if you're you're hosting stateful apps, you're usually using you know a, a, a persistent volume or something. So the actual container itself, you're upgrading by by basically you know turning it off, blowing it away, and and running a new one. Uh, so so some of the more longer lived problems go away. Um, but but introduces a, a new a new set of challenges. One of those because things are you know ephemeral and changing. Um, you know. That gets more of the the model where, hey, this app, you know, your let's say your mobile app for your company isn't, you know, is having troubles and it appears to be at the web layer. Well, it's a whole bunch of containers doing that. And they could be depending on if you're using, say, like health checks and things like that it could be Kubernetes killing them uh, because it sees something wrong with them. Well, that makes your troubleshooting much harder because you're trying to figure out what's happening while the containers are disappearing and their or their name, you know, the actual pod names are changing and things like that. So having a good handle on the metadata through the stack uh, when it comes to you know tracing these you know tracing these problems you know, becomes way more important than when it's you know VM is called you know server one two three and it always has that name. Yeah, I, I think you you hit a couple of really important things. Um, you know, there's there's definitely going to be some things that get simpler. Uh, you know, I think for for one thing, some of it is some of that simplicity is kind of built into the platform um, or built into the technology. You just sort of have to know it's there. So, you know, for example, you're not, uh, you know, be, because essentially we're dealing with more immutable types of environments, um, you're not having to go in and patch things. You're not having to wonder like, okay, this this specific machine, like which patches does it have? Do we put those on there? Like if you're doing it the right way, you know, you're never patching. At least you're never patching in production. You're always making any fixes that you have um, into sort of your golden images that might live in a in a container registry. Um, maybe golden images is the wrong word, but you know, you kind of your, your trusted stuff is going to live in the registry. You make fixes there. Um, you, 
use that sort of same one across your your different environments. Um, so your patching is going to be different. Hopefully, it's going to be simpler because again, you're you're dealing with kind of immutability. You're not doing live patches and letting snowflakes happen all over the place. Um, you know, but I, I also think we're there's a lot of stuff that's going to be pretty common. Um, you know, you're, you're still dealing with networking. You're still dealing with storage in some way, shape or form, whether it's, you know, on the box or whether it's off the platform, you know, in a persistent volume or something. Um, so there is a lot of skill set that people today can, can transfer over. Um, you know, some of that's going to have to be more software centric. You know, we're not necessarily always dealing with hardware anymore. Um, but you know, that, and then I, I think one of the big things gets into people understanding, Hey, the more you can automate these things, the better. The more you can be thinking that this is a a software application as opposed to thinking it, you know, it's, it's like hardware. The more you can kind of incorporate software best practices, the better off you're gonna you're gonna start to be uh, in terms of you know just day to day operations. Yeah, I think the uh, I think the key there is automation's doable. No matter you know you can you know companies like like Google automate hardware, right? So. Right. Um, you can automate anything and, and it just gets, I think, easier, um, as you get up that stack a little bit. So if you're thinking about, well, we deploy a bunch of VMs for this application while well, figuring out how you're going to automate that takes a little more. Cause you're like, well, okay, we deploy the OS. Now, how do we reconfigure the OS for this to be this instance and, and any changes we need to make off this golden image? How do we update that, that OS image? And those type of processes are much more complex versus say a container where, you know, something like a Docker file or, or some sort of container builders can be much smaller, much more of a easier solvable problem. So it can actually make your, your automation processes easier. You know, the other thing you talked about, uh, you know, sometimes it gets crazy when you have a distributed system and this is you know kind of the world we're moving into you know the good news for that is there are a lot of tools that are now being built specifically for distributed systems distributed monitoring distributed tracing you know so it's definitely worth looking into those as well you know don't just think okay we figured out how to put an application in a container we're going to deploy it i'll just i'll just be able to use that old thing that I, you know i'll just keep using nagios to solve all my network management problems or monitoring problems like you definitely want to sort of go okay let me let me fit the tools to fit the environment the other thing i think that people are going to have to get smart about. And and the nice thing is, again, a lot of this is built natively into the system is we are moving to much more of a, of a cattle versus pets environment. You know, you're not naming these things specifically and their addresses and names are changes, but there is uh, a kind of an anchor to the system in terms of labels that allow you to put some metadata around images, put metadata around, you know, nodes in terms of where things can run for stuff like affinity. Um, So really understanding labeling uh, within uh, Kubernetes and, and so forth and how labeling ties to projects, how it ties to namespaces, how it ties to resources um, is a really important aspect of, uh, of operations that people need to start wrapping their head around. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's the, uh, you know, kind of transition process that like any new, you know, new technology, new technology paradigm takes some, takes some getting used to, but new things uh, evolve, new tools, new ways to look at it. You know, that's why you see, saw things like Prometheus and, and other new tooling, uh, come out to deal with these challenges. Let me wrap it up with uh, with one last one. Um, you know, what are some of the things that that you've seen kind of positively change from a from an operations perspective? You know, like what are some of the things that you hear from people say, like, "Oh man, this is this is easier. This is better um, now that they've moved to uh, to more of a of a container centric, Kubernetes centric environment." 
I think the the big thing is a piece of it's a change in overall mindset, at least in enterprise IT. Uh, I think you know I think of the back of the days when you know when I was you know on the customer side, you know doing this you know network engineer type work on a day to day basis. We loved building you know these these amazing systems, and you know who cares about you know complexity and customization was we saw as a positive, right? So oh, we can do this, we can we'll make the most perfect thing ever because it can do everything uh, without really uh, re- you know dealing with the down sides, especially once that starts to scale, you know, if you're in a small environment, that's okay. You're, and I think that's what we've sort of learned is these tools have come from the kind of uh, cloud scale people. Like if you're, you know, if you're Google managing a billion containers, like, you know, custom, <laughs> customization or complexity is your, is your biggest enemy. Uh, so I think bringing that mindset into the enterprise has, has really helped with things like that, where we're seeing customers now say, hey, I don't want to deploy, you know, what's the minimum I can do to meet my needs? So stuff like networking. Like, do I need some complex SDN or what, you know, what do I need to, okay, just this? Well, then I can use the defaults and, and seeing people more uh, move towards the defaults and, and keep things as simple as possible and say, what's the, what's the minimum we need to, to, um, you know, meet our challenges and our business needs uh, without trying to build some, some amazing thing. And they're seeing the benefits of that, of like, wow, this is way easier to manage. I mean, even just looking at containers, how much easier they make it to sort of manage software dependencies and stuff like that. And I think, um, it's really starting to sink in and that's the exciting piece to me. Yeah. The other thing I hear all the time, and, and this kind of goes back to something we used to hear a lot in the, in the virtualization days, the VMware days was, you know, VMware had, uh, you know, capabilities that, you know, like they called it HA and DRS, um, that basically would say like, Hey, if, if a node dies, just spin up a, a replica of it automatically. Or, you know, if you have contention on a node, um, just move that resource over to another node that, that doesn't have contention and so forth. And, you know, it's all done in software. It's all done through some sort of uh, advanced algorithms that figure all these things out. Well, at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that were scared about that. Like, oh, I don't know how that's going to affect my stuff. And and then eventually they would start to turn it on. Like that's sort of turned on by default in Kubernetes. I mean, that's the whole model where you're, you know, it's very declarative. I want it to always have this number of nodes. I want it to scale up to these number of nodes. I want it to automatically fail over. And I think for a lot of people, just the idea of like, oh, that stuff just happens. Like that's, that's awesome. I don't have to think about it. Um, I don't have to go through a, uh, you know, mental gymnastics of being like, do I turn it on? Do I turn it off? It just, it just works. And, uh, and because containers, you know, reboot and clone themselves and, you know, get pulled so fast, people just don't see it, right? All those sort of advanced deployment models are built into the platform. And, uh, I think a lot of people just love that because it's like, oh, okay, problem happens, uh, 2 a.m. on a Saturday. Cool. It just, it just fixes itself. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think just the overall, I mean, declarative, you know, back in the day used to be, you know, when you think about it from, say, like a DR, uh, contract you've run dr run books literally paper printed out like how to rebuild these servers and they were out of date you know even before the thing was even done uh so having these the i think this is you know a very good sort of just overall tech hygiene kind of thing of let's let's be declarative about everything you know from the containers like literally what's in it you know now even up to the you know the kube manifest level of like what port should this app be on? You know, how many copies should there be? Where should be deployed? All those type of things. I think the more declarative we are, and I think that's that's sort of that like infrastructure's code sort of coming coming to life. Well, listen, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up there. I think we've covered a lot of stuff between the news and uh, and a lot of this day to day operation stuff, um, folks. If you have some 
operational things you'd love for us to cover, um, you know how to reach us. All the show notes uh, details are in the show notes. You can hit us up on Twitter. You can send us emails. Um, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up, or at least for folks here in the States. So hope everybody uh, has a great Thanksgiving, a chance to spend some time with family and get away from things. Um, I know I'm going out to reinvent and then back to back with KubeCon. Uh, Tyler, are you going to be uh, at either one of those events? Uh, both, uh, both same as you. Yeah. So excited to see, you know, what, what, Amazon has in store for us uh, from a container perspective, uh, reInvent, and then, you know, KubeCon uh, right after it. We'll definitely get some shows done from there uh, for folks that have uh, a little bit of fear of missing out. We'll try and give you some some good coverage there. Uh, with that, uh, Tyler, thanks for the time this week. And folks, we're going to wrap it up, and we will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.